أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين. So one of the challenges that we have in Islam is how do we deal with the multiplicity of legal opinions that we have. So we know uh, and it's common that in the world of Sunni Islam we have four schools of thought or school, four schools of law. Uh, there's the Hanafi school, the Shafi'i school, the Maliki school and the Hanbali school. And one of the things that we are, you know, we are proud of and that we openly defend is we, we, we say that all of these schools and all of these opinions are concurrently correct uh, on all of these subjects. And we celebrate the plurality that we have, the plurality of legal opinions, the plurality of legal expression. But the question that would you know, become logical after that, well, is there one that's right and one that's wrong? Me as an average Muslim, what opinion do I follow? What school do I follow? How do we live with the plurality? So sometimes the plurality creates a problem because then you have all of these options. If there's no options, it's kind of just easy. You, you go with one thing. So today I wanted to address that a little bit. And it's one of our principles because we live um, in an age in which we desperately need all of this plurality, all of these plural opinions and hopefully, uh, inshallah, that will become clear. So, beginning at the time of, the, of prophecy with the Prophet ﷺ, you know, there was no need for plurality. If, if you had a question, you just asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, he'd give you the answer, and, and that was that. It was, life was pretty simple. After the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, this is when we begin the seeds of this plural expression the plural expression of how we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And even the companions themselves, there was about 130 of the companions that engaged in, in fatwa, that engaged in le legal opinions, both men and women. Mostly men, but there were also women uh, amongst the Sahaba that did that. Meaning that when somebody had a question, they would go to this companion, they would go to that companion, and they would get a legal opinion. Some of the companions, they issued multiple, you know, you know, dozens of legal opinions. Some of the companions, they only opined on one issue or two issues and it was limited. But the, the legal rank that's higher than that of a mufti is what we call a mujtahid. And a mujtahid is somebody that is able to look directly at the Qur'an and the sunnah and be able to derive the rulings without having to rely on precedent or without having to rely on a school of thought or something like that. And of the mujtahid, of that rank, there was only about 20 of the sahaba that were at that level. So think about that. If we, if we argue that at the death of the Prophet, of the passing of the Prophet wasallam, there was about 100 to 120,000 companions. That means only 20 of those companions were at that level of legal independence, that level of ijtihad. Following from the companions up until our time, when we, you know, the people, not me, but the people that actually studied this, they found that there have been over 80 
schools of law throughout the history of Islam. Not just the four, but over 80. Now, again, maybe some of these schools were limited in certain issues or certain geographies. The four schools that we just mentioned, they are the more complete, the ones that have been uh, tended to the most, they have been serviced the most, they have you know, dozens and dozens of books that have been published and commented on, etc. Maybe some of these other opinions were very limited. And to have a school of legal thought, you have to have students that study the school, that write about the school, that advance the school. So if you don't have that, the school will die. So some of them, you know, they don't survive the test of time. But when we look at our legal history in both Sunni and Shia Islam, we have between 80 to 90 schools of law. 80 or 90 attempts to develop some sort of paradigm, some way of thinking that we apply to the Qur'an and the Sunnah to derive these rules. Now this doesn't mean that all of the issues that we have are all debatable. That every issue of law that we have, there's 80, 90, you know, 100 opinions. Because our sharia is divided into two categories. One category is what we call absolute. It's qat'i, meaning that everyone agrees. These things don't require plurality, nor is plurality accepted. So, for example, we all agree that we pray five times a day. We all agree that we have to face the qibla when we pray. We all agree that we have to have wudu before we pray. Uh, we all agree that lying is haram. We all agree that uh, t drinking alcohol is haram. That uh, eating uh, products from pig is haram. So on and so forth. So these things are issues of consensus. Ijma'ah. And ijma'ah consensus is one of the hallmarks of, of the Islamic legal tradition. That, that means that everybody at any, every age, they all agree on these issues. So we don't need to debate them. So there's no debate in those issues. You can't come and say... I know we have to fast, but let's not fast in Ramadan. Let's, let's fast in Muharram or something. That won't work because there's ijma, there's consensus that the fasting month that is obligatory for Muslims must take place in Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the lunar calendar. And the lunar calendar begins by the sighting of the new moon, so on and so forth, etc. So there's no wiggle room. You can't come and say, oh, let's spread Hajj. Let's make Hajj 10 times during the year because there's just too many people. And we'll all go to uh, Mecca, Mina, Muzdalafah, we'll all do the same things, but we'll spread it. You can't. Why? Because there's ijma'ah, there's a consensus that hajj can only take place in these days of Dhul Hijjah, and uh, you can make ihram from these places, so on and so forth. You get the idea. But there are some parts, the second part of our sharia, which are dhanni, which are debatable, which are partial. Meaning that each school applying its own system of thinking to the Qur'an and Sunnah, did its best to interpret these issues. And they might, for, for various reasons that do not necessarily concern us here in this venue, might derive slightly different opinions, slightly different uh, rulings. Their, their understanding and the reading of the text give a, plural, a set of plural answers. It is amongst this area of the sharia that this discussion takes place. So as a Muslim, what do I do? Do I, do I follow any and all of these? Is one better than the other? Is one more correct than the other? Etc. <coughs> How do you deal with the plurality? Now, when it comes to the uh, average Muslim, 
And here, what we mean by average Muslim is we mean the non-trained legal scholar, which is essentially you know, all of us, meaning it's not, it's not your area of expertise. Your way of, of uh, answering this question is essentially what the mufti that is closest to you or the, the, the sharia teacher that is close to you tells you. So you ask somebody learned, hopefully that you trust, what do I do in this, what do I do in that? They give you the answer and you just go with that. But if you're studying and you're exposed to all of this, it becomes a little bit more complicated because you kind of know the ins and the outs. In this regard, one of the theories or one of the themes that we have is we have this theme of taqlid, the theme of following. So when you start to study uh, uh, fiqh, you start with one school of thought and you study it and you, become, you imitate that school of thought. The taqlid means to copy or to imitate or to follow. So when I started studying, for example, I started studying with the Shafi'i school because that's what was accessible to me. So I'm a Shafi'i, just by default. That's what I follow. The way I think, the way I pray, the way I function in my devotional life is according to the Shafi'i madhab. It doesn't mean that the Shafi'i madhab is better than the others or more correct than the others. It means that that's what I had accessible to me. So that's what I studied. So I was limited. However, even in that, even in the course of following a school of law, you know, any, any uh, school of law is dealing with millions of minute issues of, of law. That doesn't mean every single thing I do in my life falls, follows strictly the Shafi'i madhab. Sometimes you have to take another opinion. You have to take a dispensation by following another opinion because it is more compatible. And it is here that we are reminded of this principle of this concurrent correctness of all of these schools of law. So as long as we are not talking about an issue in which there is consensus, and as long as we've established that there are different, correct, concurrent, different opinions on an issue, as a Muslim you are allowed to and permitted to follow any of those opinions that makes most sense for you. And let me give you an example. Most of the schools of law consider a dog to be ritually impure, or, or more correctly, to consider the saliva of the dog to be ritually, well actually the dog, all of it, is to be ritually impure. What we say in Arabic is najis. So if the dog, you know, licks you, uh, or you came in contact, you'd have to wash that area before you prayed, for example. If the dog, you know, licked a bowl or a cup or a spoon or something, you know, you'd have to wash it seven times, one time with earth, as the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ says. However, in the school of Imam Malik, Imam Malik had a different opinion, and he said that all animals, all created things are pure, including the dog and the pig. It doesn't mean that you can eat the dog and the pig, that's a different issue. But from the point of view, is the animal pure or not? Imam Malik said, no, they're all pure. So, if you live in the West the way we do, you know, it would make more sense that you follow that opinion. So when you're standing in line at the train station or the airplane or the airport and you know you have the canine dog, you know, don't be the Muslim that runs away from the dog because then, then the dog is going to run after you and then you know, see something, say something and that's a disaster. You know? uh, so that's not going to work. So for our predicament, that doesn't work. Or if you have somebody that's blind and they have a service animal or, or elderly and they have a service, service animal, and they want to come to the mosque. You know, most people in the mosque would freak out. Billah, the dog in the mosque, you know. But we have to take this opinion because 
we, we're in need of this opinion. So in this age that we live in, the plural age that we live in, we need this plurality in our sharia to be able to find those rulings that are more compatible. And the burden of this, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are listening, falls on the learned person. The burden of deciding and choosing which opinion is most compatible falls on those that are studying. So no longer can you just go and, okay, I studied the Hanafi madhab and that's it. That's all I know. I'm going to go back to my community and I'm going to beat Hanafism into them, you know, uh, no matter what. That's not going to work. Because there are many things that might not be compatible. There are many things that might not work. There are many things that might seem antiquated. There are many, th- many people, they grow up with a certain legal tradition, not knowing that it's a certain legal tradition. Like for example, for the Hanafis, the man has to cover his head when he prays. So if you go into a, like a subcontinent mosque or like a Turkish mosque, oftentimes even when you're praying and your head is not covered, somebody will come and they'll put something on your head. And they'll have like these plastic kufis, like a bucket of plastic like kufis to cover your head with. Or you know, sometimes the men, they take out their handkerchief and they tie it on their head when they pray and things like that. Where is this coming from? Because this is a legal opinion that says this. Now the other schools, it doesn't. You know, for the Shafi school, you don't have to do that. It's a sunnah to cover your head for a man if you're praying. So if you go to a... If I walked into a mosque that's predominantly people that are from the subcontinent, and everyone has covered their heads, and I've been invited to give a lecture, and I show up, you know, with uh, with a t-shirt and uh, jeans. You know, they're gonna they're gonna say, "Audu billah, who is this, you know, sellout uh, guy that's coming?" You have to be sensitive to these things. So, in the age of plurality, this is when we also need our our Islam needs to be plural in this sense by following the valid concurrent opinions. And I I want to make that point very clear that all of these p- opinions are concurrently correct. We're not saying that one is correct over another. But we will choose one over another because we are in need of that opinion. Because it is more compatible with our way of life, it is more compatible with our customs, uh, etc. Lastly, I wanted to just give you a very short uh, history of how this has taken place. Because sometimes as Western Muslims, I feel that we might be uh, far removed from, from some of these trends. So in, in Egypt, which, which I'm most familiar with, uh, at, at the National Fatwa Office, Dar al-Ifta', in which I uh, uh, was a part of for many years, almost a decade actually, that institution is a good example of what I'm saying, of how what I'm saying has become institutionalized, or is starting to become institutionalized. So the National Fatwa Office of Egypt was established in 18... 95. So in that year, there was an official position called the Grand Mufti of Egypt. So this is now a position that has been established and their job is obviously to issue fatwas. At that time in 1895, Egypt was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman world, let us say. And one of the features of the Ottoman Empire is that Hanafi, the Hanafi law, Hanafi school of thought, was adopted as the official madhab of the empire. So by default, all of the countries and all of the regions that fall under you know, Ottoman influence would, are Hanafi. 
So if you wanted to work as a Sharia judge or if you wanted to work as a Mufti in Egypt, you needed to learn Hanafi fiqh even if you grew up studying another madhab. So at that time, in the very beginning, it was all exclusively based on Hanafi fiqh. And then a couple of Muftis later, when Muhammad Abdu, uh, you know, the famous Muhammad Abdu, when he became the Grand Mufti of Egypt, he started noticing that this was a problem. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, he, was, he grew up as a Maliki. So that was one of the issues that he had to learn another madhab to, to be able to serve. But he started finding that there were certain opinions of Hanafi fiqh that just did not work with what was happening in Egypt. So he started opening up the fatwa process to the four Sunni schools of law. So, and I, I don't mean every single issue, I'm just, but I mean that you will find in his writings opinions based on the Maliki school, an occasional uh, reference to the Hanbali school, an occasional reference to the Shafi'i school. So he started to open up the fatwa process to accommodate more than one madhab. And then a few generations later, they added to the four, another four madhabs. So at this time we had the Hanafi, Shafi'i, or Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali. Right, those are the four Sunni schools, the big four. But then we have four other schools. We have the Zahiri school, which is a minor school that you find in some places in the Muslim world. The Ibadi school, which is the school of the Omanis in the Arabian Peninsula. The Zaydi school, the Shias of Yemen. And the Ja'fari school, the, the Twelver Shias. So notice that we add Shia schools of law now to the mix of plurality of the issues, that, of the sources that we look to to solve some of these problems. Now, there are a lot of differences between the Sunni schools and the Shia schools on many issues. But there are also similarities and there are also nuances that the Shia schools have that the Sunni schools don't have. And in, in many, not many, that's the wrong word, but in, in some cases, as the Muslim world was making the transition into modernity and part of that process was to codify their legal code, there were some Sunni countries that took some opinions from the Shia madhahib and enshrined them in the, in the law. In Egypt, for example, one of the laws dealing with inheritance was taken from the Jafari school. This is like one of the famous uh, examples. And then after the eight schools, a couple of generations later, now the, the institution is looking at all of these 80, 90 schools of the past. So this is an institutionalization of what I have just stated, or an attempt at an institutionalization. I'm not saying it's, it's foolproof. And not all of the fatwa centers or councils around the world follow, but this is one of the trends that's happening, especially with international matters. And it's important for us to know this so we understand that there is this plurality, and that the plurality is an asset, not a liability. And we should be aware of this as we seek guidance in our own life. Wallahu alam.
And with all due respect to those brothers, that's kind of like an absurd thing to say, you know, because, you know, they'll say, oh, we follow the Quran and Sunnah. And it's like, okay, well, everybody follows the Quran and Sunnah, but what do you mean by that? You know, so it's like, can you respond to, like, some of those Salafi or Athari brothers when they say, we reject the three? So it's, um, oh, did this die? There's a, can someone give me the other one in the box that's right there? It's a correct statement, but they're, they're trying to use it for something that's not correct. So to say that taqlid is a... It's a uh, it, taqlid is weaker than ijtihad. I mean, the goal is ijtihad. You don't go study fiqh for decades just to be an imitator. Yeah. The goal is to reach the level of ijtihad so you can you know, benefit the ummah. But that's, that's difficult. That's not easy. Uh, you know, I studied with some smart people. I mean, that's, it's very hard. I mean, to, uh, and it's something that it's not a, it's, Allah just bestows it on you. It's not like you graduate, okay, now you're a mujtahid. It doesn't work like that. You have to work at it and you have to be dedicated to it and things like that. But because of its rarity... I mean, there were only 20 of the Sahaba, 20 of the 120,000 Sahaba that were mujtahids. So the other Sahaba were garbage? No, they were, they were the Sahaba. For us, they are all examples, moral examples. But that just underscores that it's difficult. It's a profession that requires dedication. So you can't interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah if you don't know the rules of interpreting the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And that's all the madhahib are. So when I say I'm a muqallid, I am following a set of uh, principles of interpreting the Qur'an and the Sunnah. That's what taqlid means. Yeah, right. So how can you interpret? Because there's a lot of details that we didn't get into, but how do you know to advance one proof text over another? How do you know the grade of the hadith? How do you know the meanings of all of the words in the verse of the Qur'an that you're trying to interpret? Etc, etc, etc. So... Because of the impossibility of every single one of us doing that for all issues, we have this, this institution of taqlid. You just, you just follow what's been written and you're fine. So, all right. I mean, everybody has a teacher. Everybody everyone has a teacher except common, those people. It's just a common slogan you hear. You know? it's like, well, because they don't have a teacher. But everyone doesn't follow the Quran and Sunnah. You can say that, but not everyone, they're not following the Quran and Sunnah. Because the Qur'an tells us to follow those that are in authority. Who are ulil amri minkum then? If the ulama are not, if the mujtahids are not, if the a'imma are not. So it's just, that's why I'm saying, it's like that isolated statement, there's some truth in it, but they, they're using it for something wrong. Yeah.
you just need to ask. Unfortunately, you're stuck with me. But, so you just, you just need to ask. So that's, that's also, you know, think about it like you're like a physician. You know, you, you, when you have a problem, you ask the physician. When you don't have a problem, you don't have to ask the physician. But you don't have to know everything that the physician knows. You might try to read articles and you might try to, you know, WebMD or something like that to educate yourself. But at the end of the day, you go to the physician, you say, you know, this is what I'm, you know, they, you can't prescribe the medicine for yourself. They, they have the authority to do that. It's the same thing with, with, with the Sharia. Ask the person that is available to you, as long as you trust them and you, you find them to be uh, up to the task. And then you just follow what the burden is on them, not, not on you. But when you, when you set out to study, you have to study one school. You can't study 80 at the same time. That's impossible. You have to study one school to the end so you understand how the thing works. In the process, you learn about the other opinions. So even though I only studied one madhab, I worked at Dar al-Ifta. I worked at the National Fatwa Office. So I, I, was, you know, I saw you know, every week hundreds of fatwas being issued and you learn how other opinions work, what opinions don't work and things like that. That's part of the training. But my, my academic study was with one madhab, you know, book after book after book until you, you sort of you soaked yourself in that way of thinking. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about that. I kind of got stuck. You go with uh, what the person you ask tells you, the person that is qualified. I don't have any problems to ask about, so how do I get So you just, you, you, you do what you've been doing until you have a problem. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> but that happens, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it does happen. Yeah. But it confuses you, and lots of people uh, do that. That's called second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> you see, what, what happens is... One of the things that they taught us is that you have to learn to read the person that's asking you the question. So even though somebody comes and asks a question... My job or somebody that's in my position's job is to be able to read in between the lines. One time I remember somebody wrote a question. Uh, it had to do with inheritance. And there was like something about they wanted money, there was a marriage, and then somebody died on one of their side and they wanted money. And for me, when I heard the question, I was like, okay, this is a simple inheritance question. But then the mufti said, no, it's not. This person was a Christian and they became Muslim. And now they're trying to take the money uh, from the, the deceased Christian family. Which I thought, well, how did you read that into the situation? It's because the mufti knows these, it smelled wrong. Because part of the fiqh is that if you convert, you don't inherit from your non-Muslim family. Why? So no one comes and tells us well, Islam you know, took the money from the family and stuff like that. So you come into Islam with, with nothing. So the mufti read in this question in between the lines. I mean, this is what I said there. That's not written in the question. But the question smelled funny. 
And they investigated and it found out to be true. And I, I was completely wrong. So the job of the person being asked is they have to also read the person in front of them. Where are they coming from? What's their background? To give them the answer. Um, which means, which is why another reason why you should not do like the shopping thing. Because a lot goes into answering the question. Two people might ask me the same question and I might give two different answers. Because of this reason. Which is why a lot of the questions are better done in private. Because then people will think that you know, you're making things up. So it's very important that you read in between the lines. And for example, if a woman comes to ask a question and she's wearing niqab, she has to, I have to ask her to remove her niqab. Because you have to be able to see the person's face. You can't give a fatwa when you're upset. You can't give the fatwa if you're hot. You can't give the fatwa if you need to use the restroom. You can't give a fatwa if you're sleepy. All of these conditions, because you have to really be in the, in the zone when someone's asking you the question, you have to be able to read. and That's at least how it's supposed to be. I mean, I know that doesn't always happen, but, but that's how it's supposed to be. So a lot goes into that transaction. So we, we should respect when we ask people that are qualified. But the, the key is finding the qualified people to start out with. I think the reason people shop is that they, they might sense that the person they're asking is not trustworthy. So... So like we answered that before, that, that the madhab, the issue of following one madhab is for, the, is, is for the person that you are asking. But if you are not trained in, the, in this science, you follow what your teacher tells you, what the mufti tells you, or what you grew up knowing how to do. You just continue doing what you've been doing. Unless you're told you're doing it wrong. Unless you're told you're doing it wrong, yes. Yeah, you only identify yourself with that if you've studied. It's into your background is Somali, right? So you're Shafi. <laughs> you ask a Somali, is Somali, uh, Somali a Muslim? We are 110% Muslim. They're very proud. And they're all Shafi. Somalis are Shafis. Nigerians are Malikis. So you grew up like that. That's, that's the culture. Like if you're from the subcontinent, you're Hanafi. That's okay. That, that's okay. So the, the Jafari Mosque is, uh, goes back to Imam Jafar al-Sadiq who was one of the descendants of the Prophet ﷺ, and he's one of our Imams as well. And Imam Abu Hanifa, he said, uh, Were it not for the two years that I spent with Jafar al-Sadiq, I would have been ruined. So Imam Abu Hanifa studied with Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. And that's why there are many of the Sunni schools that are the closest to the Jafari school. It's the Hanafi school is the closest. And they just, it's just a different fiqh based because they have a different set of hadith that they use in addition to the sayings of the imams that they use. Now from our perspective, there is some weakness from our perspective in some of how some of that madhab was transmitted. But... At the end of the day, it's been serviced the way that the Sunni schools have been serviced, tremendously serviced. I mean, there are books and books and books. And, and when I sit with you know, Rasul and we get into the details, I mean, they have a lot of 
nuances and a lot of writings and, and it's a serious it's a serious madhab. But the Zaydi school is the closest school to Sunni Islam. So the Zaydis, um, there's just a, a, a different bifurcation in the Imams. The, in, in Zaydi Shia Islam, the Imam is, is uh, alive now. I mean, it didn't stop with the 12. It, it's the, a continual descendants of the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, and their schools of law and their books of fiqh have also been preserved and serviced and everything. And they're even closer to the Sunni schools than the Jafari school. But the Zaydis are, are really confined to like the Yemen area and maybe a little bit elsewhere. But the Jafaris, uh, you're talking about the Shias of Lebanon, uh, Iraq, of course, Iran, Bahrain. I mean, it's a huge segment of the population, the Shia in the subcontinent. All of those are, or most of those are Jafari. So it's, it's the population wise, it's larger. That, that's just historic because the because the uh, uh, the the Maturidi school grew up in the Transoxania uh, lands, all the stands of Afghanistan and you know all the stands, and that's just where the Hanafi school was as well. So it's just uh, it's just historic, yeah, ge geography, not not like uh, no. And the differences between the Ash'ari and the Maturidi schools are very few. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty much the same, yeah. So it's just historic. But all of the major Sunni institutions are Ash'ari. So Al-Azhar, of course, were, you know, very fanatically Ash'ari. Qarawin, uh, Zaytuna, um, all, of the, all of the universities of, in the Sham area, the Sunni universities, all Ash'ari. Uh, Yemen, Ash'ari. Uh, the, the whole Hejaz. I mean, the Ash'ari Ash'ari is the is the institutionalized Orthodox theological school. They're the largest, right? Maybe, maybe. I I don't know, but it's institutionalized. That's the key. So when you when you go to study in one of these major seminaries, what you're going to study from the, the theology are the Ash'ari texts right away. So it's just. You might, if you advance, you might read some Maturidi text, but it's very rare. It's really just Ash'ari. Um, yeah, so even if you're Hanafi and you're an Azhar, you're going to read the Ash'ari texts. I mean, they are, they are the same. Yeah. So. I mean, you could lose your degree from Al Azhar if you were not Ash'ari. Yeah, it, it's, it's serious. Yeah. Theoretically, you could lose your degree. Because that means you're not a Sunni Muslim then. If you renounce the Ash'ari school, that means you're not a Sunni Muslim, then what are you? Then the question is, well, what are you? So the, the institution is like, well, you know, how can you be an Azhari if you're not, if, you're, if you don't follow the, the code? Like in A Few Good Men, there's the code. That's our code that we have. Any sisters have anything? No? Is it Aisha time? Okay, I have a question for you before before we pray. 
so I've done 10 of these uh, like principal uh, issues. So my question is, would you like me to continue or have you had enough and would you like to do something else? Because I wanted to do at least 10. Yeah? Okay. Okay. That's one suggestion. Anybody else? Yes. I don't. I, I'm not. I have no personal staff. I'm going to come every Friday, no matter what. So, uh, I don't. If you don't, don't like this, that's fine. Anas is saying four. What does that mean? I don't know what four means. Four wives. Four. Four rakas. Four. I mean, four minutes. Any, no one has an opinion? I'd like you to continue. Okay, that's one. Anybody else? There was one suggestion that I had of maybe revisiting the seerah. To do the entire seerah again. And I wanted to know if that was of interest. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. We need like an app, Brother Mohsen. Everyone can vote. So I can, I can just take home the... Seerah, is that a vote for a seerah? Yeah. Okay. So Sira is much more interesting than this. Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> Would it be okay if like we did one more month of this, like, which means four classes in October, and then we, f we switch to the Sira? Would that be okay? Because I'm a little bit bored of this. I, that's why I'm also asking. Because these, I, I started to realize that these principles could be endless. You could just do this forever. You could just do like principle 1,005, you know, 1,010. And I don't want it to end up into that because there's no end to them. But I thought that, um, I, I do think they're important, but there's also, they're also a little bit technical. So, so maybe one more month of this and then we can start the Sira again. And then um, maybe, um, maybe during one of the breaks, we can take a break from the Sira and do like an Aqidah thing. Maybe I can weave that in. Because Aqidah is also a little... No, always be Q&A. Always be Q&A. Yeah, always Q&A is always open. The Q&A doesn't have to be limited to what I said, of course. You can not care about anything I said but want to talk about something else. I'm fine with that. Uh, Okay, I, I want uh, today I didn't do that because I felt that at the end of last Friday we were rushed because of Aisha prayer, and I think things were like starting to get heated, and I and and I didn't want people to think that I didn't notice that, and I didn't want people to. That's why. But y yeah, usually we'll I'll speak first and then we'll have the Q and A. Okay. Other than that, uh, are there any other issues that are outstanding? I think we're still waiting for Ennis, so we have maybe three minutes or two minutes. Oh, somebody wanted to talk about gender stuff. Is that is that person here? Oh, okay. It doesn't matter, I guess. Maybe we could talk about that next time. Okay.